Welcome to uh, the Bible in chronological order, or written order. Uh, we're about three quarters of the way through. Uh, today we're going to talk about First Peter. Uh, Randall keeps reminding me to say something I haven't said yet about the difference between circular letters and occasional letters. And in, Pauline theology. In, in Pauline theology. In your Bible, there are four occasional letters. Occasional means they're written for an occasion to a person. And your Bible luckily puts them all together. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. They're all written by Paul, and they're written to an individual for a particular reason. So the last couple weeks, we've been uh, looking at some of those. Next week, we're going to do 2 Timothy. And we'll wrap up those occasional letters. The important about difference between a circular letter, which is meant to go to lots of churches, and occasional is if you interpret them, it's how you interpret them. An occasional letter, you have to know why he is writing the letter. It becomes very important that you don't take answers that he is giving for a specific occasion and make those law without figuring out what the underlying principle is that Paul's talking about. And the, the reason that comes up is that the only two places in the New Testament that Paul talks about qualifications of elders are 1 Timothy and Titus. Both are occasional letters, so you have to be careful that you don't look at those and say, well, this is total scripture for all time exactly the way it's written. You have to understand what he is saying and why he is saying it. So that's just a reminder of what we've talked about the last couple of weeks. But, but that's not to diminish the inspiration no, of Scripture. No, they, they are very important, and they're inspired, but you have to understand that you read them a little differently than you read like we're going to read today, which is First Peter. And to make it easy, we're going to start with some video today. I hope we're going to start with some video. The first letter of Peter. His name was Shimon, or Simon, when he first became a follower of Jesus, and he was part of the inner circle of the twelve disciples. When he made his confession that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus changed his name to Kephas, which is Aramaic for rock, which was later translated into Greek as Petros, or Peter. Jesus promised that he would become a leader among the apostles to guide the Messianic community in Jerusalem through its earliest years. And that's what happened. Remember the early chapters of the book of Acts. Eventually, Peter was called to carry the good news of Jesus beyond the borders of Israel, however. And this letter was written decades into that mission in the wider Roman world. We discover at the conclusion of this letter that Peter is in Rome, which he calls Babylon. And we learned that while Peter commissioned the letter, it was actually composed by a man named Silvanus, who was a co-worker of Peter. This was a circular letter sent to multiple church communities in the Roman province of Asia Minor, <clears throat> modern-day Turkey. And Peter learned that these mostly non-Jewish Christians were persecuted. They were facing hostility and harassment from their Greek and Roman neighbors. And so Peter wrote to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. And this helps explain the letter's design and its main themes. It opens with a greeting, and then it moves into a poetic song of praise to God, which introduces the key themes that are explored in the main body of the letter, where he first affirms the new family identity of these persecuted Christians, which will help them see their suffering as a way to bear witness to Jesus. And this has a way of focusing their future hopes on the return of Jesus. Let's dive in. You'll just see how all the pieces work together. 
So Peter opens by greeting these churches as the chosen people of God who are exiled around the world. Now Peter makes clear throughout the letter that these Christians he's writing to are Gentiles. But here he describes them with phrases from the Old Testament that describe how God chose the people of Israel, the family of Abraham, who was himself an exile and wanderer. This is a key strategy that Peter repeats through the whole letter. He wants these suffering, non-Jewish Christians to see that through Jesus, they now belong to the family of Abraham. And so they're wandering exiles just like him, misunderstood, they're mistreated, and they're looking for their true home in the promised land. Peter continues this idea in the opening song. He praises God for causing people to be born again into a living hope through Jesus' resurrection and the power of the Spirit. God's inviting all people into a new family centered around Jesus, a family that has a new identity as God's beloved children and who have a new hope of a world reborn by God's love when Jesus returns as King. And for people who have this hope, suffering and persecution is actually a strange gift because it burns away false hopes and distractions like purifying fire. And it reminds us of our true home and hope. So paradoxically, life's hardships actually deepen our faith. They make it more genuine. From here, Peter's going to move on into the body of the letter, but he's going to explore all these ideas in greater depth. So he first develops the theme about the new family identity of God's he takes even more memorable Old Testament images about the family of Israel, and then he applies them to these Gentile Christians. So like the Israelites who left Egypt, they too are to gird up their loins and leave behind their former way of life on the way to a new future. So they are the holy people of God now who are journeying through the wilderness. They are the people of the new Exodus who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who's the ultimate Passover land. They are the people of the new covenant who have God's word buried deep inside of them, restoring their hearts and renewing their minds. They are the new temple built on the foundation of Jesus himself. And they're the new kingdom of priests who are serving God as his representatives to the nation. Now by applying all of these amazing images to these persecuted Gentile Christians, Peter is placing their suffering within a brand new story. And this leads into the next section. Their persecution can actually help bring clarity to their mission in the world, to bear witness to God's mercy among the nations. So Peter first encourages them to submit to Roman rule, even if it's oppressive. Yes, he acknowledges, their persecution, their suffering is unjust. But violent resistance solves nothing, not to mention that it betrays the teachings of Jesus who loved his enemies instead of killing them. Peter then specifically highlights the very difficult situation that Christian slaves and wives faced when they lived in Roman households where the patriarch did not follow Jesus. The problem was that it was expected that everyone in the household would submit to and worship the patriarchs. And so Peter's aware that giving allegiance to Jesus will generate suspicion. So Peter says, it's true, all Christians, including Roman wives and slaves, have been fully liberated by Jesus. But they are to demonstrate that freedom, not through rebellion, but by resisting evil the same way Jesus did, through showing love and generosity to your enemies. And in homes where the husband is also a Christian, it's a different story. They are to treat their wives totally different from their Roman neighbors, regarding them as equals before God who are worthy of honor and respect. And Peter's hopeful that this imitation of Jesus' love and upside-down kingdom will give power to their words as they bear witness to God's mercy and show people the beautiful truth about the way of Jesus. But Peter's also a realist. 
He knows that Christians will continue to be persecuted, and so he reminds them of their future vindication. He recalls how Jesus himself was unfairly persecuted and murdered by corrupt human powers, but in reality, he was dying for the sins of his enemies. And afterward, he was vindicated and given resurrection life by the Spirit. And now Jesus is exalted as king over all human and spiritual powers. Then Peter shows how baptism points to the vindication of Jesus' followers. So like Noah, they've been saved through the waters, not as a magic ritual, but as a sacred symbol that shows their change of heart, their desire to be joined to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And so now, even if they are murdered for following Jesus, their hope is in future vindication and exaltation alongside their king. Which leads Peter into the final movement. He recalls Jesus' words that his disciples should consider it an honor and joy to be persecuted just like he was. Peter then calls on church leaders to care for these suffering Christians and to show the same kind of servant leadership that Jesus did to his followers. And finally, Peter reminds these Christians about the real enemy that they are facing. This hostility isn't simply cultural or even political. There are dark forces of spiritual evil at work inspiring hatred and violence. And they are to resist this evil by staying faithful to Jesus and his teachings and by anticipating his return and ultimate victory over such evil. Peter concludes with a prayer for divine strength. And he sends a greeting from the church in Rome, which he calls Babylon. Now this is cool. Peter's adopting here the tradition of the Old Testament prophets for whom the name Babylon became an archetype for any and every corrupt nation. And so Rome has become the new Babylon, and its empire is where God's people are now exiled from their true home in the renewed creation. Peter's first letter is a powerful reminder of Christian hope in the midst of suffering. God's people have been a misunderstood minority from the very beginning, and they should expect to face hostility because they've chosen to live under the rule of a different king, Jesus. However, persecution can become a strange gift to the church because it offers a chance to show others the surprising generosity and love of Jesus, which is fueled by the hope of his return. And that's what 1 Peter is all about. The second letter of Peter. It's addressed to... I guess we should not do the second letter until the time. We don't want to get ahead. All right, there you go. Everything you need to know about 1 Peter right there. Or maybe not. All right, let's talk about 1 Peter a little bit. Uh, the five W's, you know, who, what, when, where, why. Uh, to show I did, in fact, pay attention during English class while I was in school. Just not math and science. All right, the who, Peter. Uh, Peter the Apostle. Whenever you look at New Testament books, there's always people who say, oh, these were written in 80 AD. These were written in 120 AD. They were written in 200 AD. And so the question is, how do you know what we know? Uh, Clement, who uh, lived in AD 95, uh, writes, quoting, in some of his writing, the book of 1 Peter. So we're pretty sure it's written by the time Clement's around. And then Polycarp, <coughs> who is a direct disciple of John, which we're going to get into in about three weeks or so, we're going to start the John section of the New Testament. Uh, 
makes use of, also quotes 1 Peter, uh, when he writes his letter back to the Philippians. So we know that by around 100, people are reading this letter. Uh, and then they both say that Peter, the apostle, wrote it. Uh, and the what is a circular letter to the Gentile Christians. The when is 64-65. Uh, we know it's not after 66 because why? Anybody? Peter's dead. Peter's dead. Uh, yes, the Holy Spirit works, but he has not written books after the guys are dead. Why is he dead? Nero. Nero. Uh, which is what, why he writes this letter. Where is he at? He is writing to modern Turkey. He is in Rome. Why is he in Rome? He's probably arrested at this point. Because uh, 64, July 64, the fire of Rome. Nero figures out a new people to blame for his problems. Because when you're, you know, we've talked about that, when you're in trouble as a leader, the first thing you do is find an external enemy to focus your people on. Prior, he's been, he's been doing the Jews a lot. But after the trial of Peter, uh, trial of Paul, this is the first time he separates out Christians as a separate group to persecute. So after July 64, which is the fire in Rome, Christians become the official uh, scapegoat. scapegoat for the Roman Empire. So it becomes fair game to persecute Christians. Now we were already the oddballs because you know we're, they see us as atheists. We don't have gods in our house. We're not going to temple anymore with the rest of them. In Roman and Greek society, your life revolved around temple. And when the people became Christians, they quit going to the temple. When you read Corinthians, that's what Paul was telling them. You can't be both. You can't be a Christian and continue to do all the temple things that you did before. You have to pick. And so when you pick Christianity, you become the oddball. So there's already... Uh, issues around Christianity, you can't do the business deals in the business world in those days were around the temple. So if as a Christian you're not there, you're missing out on opportunities. Uh, and so there's a lot of that subtle type of persecution coming on. After 8064, July, it does, it's not subtle anymore. Nero says Christians are uh, official enemies of Rome. And uh, what was the name of the movie with Paul? We talked about it. Paul. The movie Paul? Oh, there you go. <laughs> I, thought I, had, I thought I had a catchy title. No, Paul. All right. Uh, there is, uh, it's Paul, the end of Paul's life. There is a scene in there where uh, they are called uh, Christian lamps. What Nero did is got Christians, dipped them in tar, hide them to post and set them on fire. And that's how he lit Rome at night. Uh, so you, you, you can tell that if you, if you wanted to be a Christian in those days, there was a cost. And so that's the type of persecution. So once the emperor starts doing that, it's fair game throughout the rest of the Roman Empire. So the people in this area are starting to see persecution officially in addition to being the oddballs. Uh, and so the theme 
is the exhortation to stand firm in the faith in the face of suffering and persecution. So it's him to, he's in jail writing a letter to them saying, you're going to suffer. And here's, here's, the, here's what you need to do. Just remembering uh, chronology, we're, we're right here. 80, 64, 65. Nero has only got about three years left. Uh, most importantly, right in this period of time, the Jews are starting to rev up in uh, Judea, the first rebellion that ends up with Jerusalem being destroyed. So that's going to affect the church somewhat, and you'll see that in John's writings, uh, because John is more in this area, and James, the apostle, is in this area. Peter's obviously in Rome. Paul, at this point, we left him last week. He's up in Macedonia, part of Greece. He's about to go back to Rome in chains uh, probably in the next six months after this book. But, but Jim, can I yes, say sorry. that John doesn't come on the scene until about nine. So to diminish what happens in Jerusalem in 70, I'm sorry, I'm reading a book called Rome in Jerusalem right now, and the horror of the way the Romans destroyed Jerusalem is incredible. I mean, Families ate each other. They yes. were that hungry. It was unbelievable. Yeah, it's... Uh, when you rebel against Rome, they have no sense of humor about that. Uh, they... They destroy uh, Jerusalem in 70. Uh, uh, to give you an idea, the, the Sephora was a small city in uh, Galilee that rebelled against the, the Romans in 3 B.C., the Romans built the town. The Jews took it over. The Romans surrounded it. And they said, You're, you have two choices. You can come out and all be slaves the rest of your lives, or you can die. And the Jews said, we'd rather die. And the Romans said, okay, thank you. They surrounded the city until they starved it out. There was no food left. Knocked the walls down. Took everyone who was an adult in that city, all the men, crucified them all the way around the city, took all the women and children and sent them to slavery. They then posted guards around the city so the Jewish people could not take the bodies down. And they left them there until they rotted. And, and, would literally, and the, the birds would eat them and they fell on the ground. Once they fell on the ground, they still had guards there and would not let the Jews, because they knew that it's a, burial's important to the Jews. That's a typical thing that happens to the Romans when you rebel against Rome. Same thing, in, when they take Jerusalem apart, they do the same thing. Because uh, that's the same area where you see Masada. Right. Uh, and so, if your choice is to become a slave or die. And, they're, and when they mean die, they mean everybody. They kill everybody. But my point is, we don't have any yes. Bible. We don't have any Bible to cover that beyond 70 to 90. Right. There, right. There's a gap. There's a huge gap, yeah. And part of that is the church becomes a persecuted church through here. And again, because the average Roman, Christians and Jews were the same people. Because we worship the same God. And we do things very similarly. All right, at the very beginning, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. When he says elect here, if you're John Calvin, starting in Calvinism, brings in a whole lot of different interpretation to this. There's two ways you can interpret this. Uh, 
I think Paul is just saying to, to God's the people that are followers of God. The exiles scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. The biggest thing I like to see here is the Trinitarian view. The foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Uh, so that's Paul's opening to this. Trinitarian view, all three, uh, and telling you who he's talking to. And just to give you an idea where he's talking, uh, these are Paul's trips. He is talking here, 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 all these people. This is important to church history because what is this city? We come right here that's not even on this map. Istanbul. Istanbul, Constantinople, which becomes the center of the church, the Eastern Church. The church will become centered in Rome and, and Constantinople. Uh, and so you can see that all the books that we've studied so far, they've not gone up to this area at all. But there's clearly lots of churches here because Paul or Peter is writing a letter to all this, and by 100, this is densely Christian. There are lots of Christians up here. Uh, Bithynia, I believe, is where uh, Pliny the, the Younger is when he writes letters back trying to figure out why Christians won't sacrifice to the emperor. He's the governor of that uh, area, and he finds and tortures two the interesting part, it's two de- he describes as deaconesses of the church, tortures them on why they won't sacrifice. Because that's tax money. Uh, and so like everything else, it all comes down to taxes. Everyone wants their tax money. Is that perpetual? What? Is that perpetual? I don't think that's perpetual. I think, he doesn't name the two. He, oh. he, he writes a letter back to you know, Tertullian, maybe, and says, hey, these guys... I've got to, half my city is Christian. They won't go to the uh, temple of the emperor and sacrifice. And so therefore, my tax revenues are down. The reason he's worried about tax revenues is if, if you, your tax revenues are down and you don't pay the emperor correctly, you become about a, a foot shorter. Uh, there's no retirement plan for bad governors in Rome. Well, there is a retirement plan. It's just a really short one. Uh, and so he's really worried that his tax receipts are not what the emperor said they are. And so he said, here's why. Everyone's a Christian. They won't pay their taxes because they won't go to the temple. So I found these two deaconesses of the church. I tortured them unto death. And they still would not uh, pay their taxes. And so he sends a letter to the emperor going, like, what else can I do? Uh, well, well, Plenty of the Elder was a horrible governor, but... He, in fact, he even says, he goes, all I really wanted to do is sit by the river, play my flute, uh, have my wife put sweetmeats in my mouth, and write poetry. Not a guy you want to make as your governor. Uh, the other part is, when you see here, here are concent- big concentration of Jewish cities in the first century. This area is where we're at. There aren't any. So this is the first time the church has really expanded outside areas that have a heavy Jewish concentration. 
And so when Peter's talking to them, he's talking to overwhelmingly Jew, uh, Gentile churches, not Jewish churches. All right, now lots of words. Uh, P, this book is very dense in its theology and discussions. Uh, there's no way we can do it in the next 20 minutes. We're going to try to hit some highlights. Uh, praise be to God the Father. He has given us a new birth into living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So, remember, church is at least half slave, because uh, they're Gentile. There's, there's some money there, but most of them are, in the Roman Empire, most people are slaves. So, there's a lot of poor people in the, the church, and so he's, what he's doing here is giving them hope, saying that, yes, you're going to get an inheritance, And verse 6, And all this you shall greatly rejoice, for though now a little you have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, and these will come so that to prove the genuineness of your faith. And this greater than gold, which is refined by fire. So what he's saying is, that's that concept you saw in the video, that suffering actually helps you because it helps you refine your faith and become stronger in your faith, which is a difficult concept, especially in the midst of suffering, that this is actually going to make me stronger. But that's what Peter is saying here. And then concerning the salvation, verse 10, the prophets, it's interesting that he, in a non-Jewish area, comes back a ton to the Old Testament, uh, which also shows that how widespread this was. He quotes the Septuagint every time he's quoting, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it shows that even in this area, which is not heavily Jewish, people understood what he was saying in, in, the, in a Jewish sense. So they had access to the Septuagint. Uh, so when, he said, when you see prophets whenever they're writing, that means the, the guys at the back part of the Old Testament. You have the law and the prophets. He's saying the prophet spoke of the grace that was come uh, to find the time to which the Spirit of Christ then was pointing. Then when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Again, Paul, Peter's just like Paul. He needs a <coughs> uh, periods, not commas. He needs a good English teacher. Uh, and so he's now, he's now telling them the prophets said that you are coming which is an interesting read of the, of the Old Testament. The Jewish read would be everyone has to become a Jew and then you, you can go into where the Messiah is going to come. Remember the last two books we looked at, Titus and Timothy. What was the, the false teaching? You had, to be you had to be Jewish in order to be a real Christian. And so that's what the underlying background to all this is that you have the Jews who have converted to Christianity saying, well, in order to be a real Christian, you need to do this. You need to eat kosher. You need to keep uh, the, the Jewish sacraments. Uh, you need to keep the Jewish holidays. You need to keep the Jewish dress. And then, you know, and that's what Paul hammers over and over again. In his very first book, in Galatians, 
Paul hammers this. He goes, no, we're free. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. There is no slave. There is no master. So everybody is the same. Everybody gets salvation exactly the same way through their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, and so Peter talks about that, but that's the background that we're dealing with here is that you have a lot of people out there teaching you must become a better Jew. You have to become a, a to become a good Christian, you have to become a Jew, a Jewish Christian. And that's and Peter and Paul are just hammering that on all the writings saying, no, no, that's that's not true. And then again, with your mind, set your hope that grace be brought to you when Jesus is revealed at his coming. And then he talks about just as he who has called you is holy, being holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Paul uh, quotes, all, all these quotes are, sorry, I keep saying Paul. Peter quotes from the Old Testament. This is uh, probably, uh, most of these come from Ezekiel. But not, can't say the right word. Isaiah. One of those Old Testament prophets. We'll get to those later. <laughs> Isaiah. Uh, and then he throws in a couple Proverbs and a couple Psalms. Uh, the interesting part of this is if you look at synagogue cycles, in the, first, the, the Jews taught on a three-year cycle in their synagogue. Uh, they would teach the law and they would teach the prophets. The prophets they taught around zero to 100 AD, Isaiah was heavily taught because Isaiah is very much messianic. The, mess, the Messiah is coming. After 100, you see a total change in the Jewish synagogue cycle. After the, the rise of Christianity, they quit teaching Isaiah and go much more into Psalms and Proverbs, wisdom literature, which I think is very interesting. It's a result of the church growing, and by 100, 150, the church is sizable, and, there's, and it's mostly Gentile. Uh, and then at the bottom, he quotes again from the Septuagint, uh, talking about, uh, you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Uh, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living, enduring word of God. And then he quotes from the Old Testament, about the word of the Lord endures forever. And as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by humans, chosen by God. Uh, as you, like living stones, have built to a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. This is very important, because who were the priests? The priests were Jews. So what he's now saying is Gentiles are equal, were all raised up to priesthood. So there's not this hierarchy of <coughs> priests and the people. He's saying everybody is raised up to the same. Whether you're Jew, you're Gentile, it doesn't matter. Everybody's a priesthood. And then uh, you, see, you see quotes from uh, primarily Isaiah. Uh, and then back here, because we, hear, we talk about this all the time. You hear this in the pulpit all the time. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Again, Remember, he's talking to a church that is overwhelmingly slave and underclass. And so what he's saying is, I'm, God has raised you up to be 
not not just even with your masters, but you are royal. Who's royal? The emperor. So he's now saying everybody is royal. That through God, you're a chosen a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. So this is incredibly life-changing to if you're a slave, for Peter to come and say, you're just like the emperor. You're just important, as important to God as the emperor is. You're all royal. You're all holy. That, that is, you know, extraordinary in this time, time frame. And then he comes back and starts giving them some practical advice. Uh, I urge you as foreigners and exiles... Because what he says, our, our life is not in this world. Our goal is in the next world. That's why we're exiles. Uh, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, i.e. those who don't believe in Jesus. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So what he's saying here is, like I said, people are... Because as Christians, they're not going to temple. They're not sacrificing to the emperor. They're not sacrificing to other temples. There's, that's seen as uh, wrong in the, in the culture. He says, but do such good deeds that they realize, yeah, he, they don't do that, but they're doing good. They're really out helping people. And submit yourselves, go back to what he said the last, what Paul has said in the last two or three books, submit yourselves for God's sake to every human authority, whether it be the emperor as supreme authority or to the governor. Because <coughs> what he's saying here is, again, Christianity calls you to, to reformation, not revolution. You reform your life. It's, you're not called to create a revolution and overthrow the government. So live your lives in such a way that people can say, well, that, that's a good man. That's a good woman. She does, everything she touches gets better. But submit yourself to the emperor. Again, who's the emperor? Nero. Where's Peter when he writes this? In prison by Nero. But he still says, submit yourself to the authority. For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So even though they say you're doing wrong by your lies, people can say, well, yeah, it's lies, but man, every, everything they touch is better. Live as free people, but not, do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So he starts with the emperor. He ends with the emperor. In prison <coughs> by that emperor. He still says you have to honor the emperor because God put that emperor there to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Even though they're right now they're not commending us. He says live your lives in such a way that people see that dichotomy. They go like, yeah, the emperor says these guys aren't good, but I see all the good that they're doing. Uh, there is a letter written just after this uh, from one of the governors to the emperor. And what he says is, the Christians help people so much that they're making us look bad. He says, not only do they take care of their 
widows and their orphans, they take care of ours. So people that aren't even Christian, the Christians are taking care of their, their, their widows and orphans. It, says, it makes us look bad among the people because we should be taking care of our own people, but the Christians do it for us. That's the outcome. That, that governor was in this area that Peter's writing this letter to. So that tells you the strength of living your life the way God has called you. Uh, that they, even the governor notices that the Christians are doing such good work that's making him, it really, he really does say, it just makes us look bad. It makes us look weak that we can't even take care of our own widows because the Christians do it before we even know the widows. So it just talks to you about Christian life. All right. The next series is, he talks about slaves, wives, and husbands. In Roman, in Roman literature, this was, the, the, this was a, a very common uh, way of talking. And, and writers would talk about this is the classic Roman household. A good household, you had slaves, you had wives, and you had husbands. Exactly what the video talked about. So it says, it's interesting that slaves come up a lot. I mean, Paul talks about them a lot. Peter talks about them. Because a third to half the church, maybe more, are slaves. <laughs> slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to the masters, not only those who are good, but also those who are harsh. So, everybody. It is commendable if someone bears under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. I be godly. And how is it credited to receive beating for doing wrong? Well, I mean, if you do wrong, you deserve the beating. Uh, but if you do it for good and you do it, it's commendable to God. For you are called because Christ suffered for you, just like you're suffering under the slave, under your master, Christ suffered. Leaving you an example that you should follow step. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. They hurled his assaults, he did not retaliate. He suffered, he made no threats. He entrusted himself to those who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. For like sheep you're going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd the overseer of your soul. So basically he tells the slaves, again, reformation, not revolution. He is not saying you should overturn and, you know, turn against your masters, kill your masters. It's reform your lives in such a way they see God living in you. Same thing Paul has said multiple times up to this point. Uh, and now we get to wives. And I start, wives, in the same way, submit yourself to your husband. So what he's saying to wives is, just like I talked to the slaves, submit yourself to the master, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. So that any of them, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of the wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So there were Christian wives who were married to pagan husbands. They said, live your lives in such a way that your husband sees God living in you. And then just obviously an issue because it, Paul, talk, Paul talks about it, now Peter talks about it. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wear of gold, jewelry, and fine clothes. It should be your inner self. And so it's, it's the same thing that he talked about in Timothy, uh, it talks about Corinthians. Uh, you know, live your, obey and live your life and let that be the example of people around you. This doesn't say, 
we don't take this as you can't have elaborate hairstyles now. But you know, they had they would weave pearls and gold through their hair just to show like how rich they were. And so that's what he's saying is that be people of goodness, not people of uh, don't be ostentatious. They submitted themselves to husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called her Lord. You are the daughter, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give away to fears. And now it comes to husbands, and they, husbands get like three lines. <laughs> husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives, and that should be wife. Uh, he's not saying you're allowed to have more than one wife. He's, because I said polygamy was uncommon during this era. Uh, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner, everyone, all the wives settle down. He's not saying you're really weaker. Uh, as heirs of you in gracious gift of life, so nothing will hinder your prayers. What did Paul say the book just before this? I want, I want men to walk around and, and live your lives such that you raise your hands in prayer everywhere you're at. Peter says the same thing. Don't let anything hinder your prayers. Uh, most people think when he says weaker partners, that what he is saying is under the legal system at the time, women were significantly weaker. If you died, if the man died, someone else took over for the wife. It wasn't that they're weaker, weaker. They're not spiritually weaker. Uh, they're not lower in God's sight. You know, Paul already said that. Uh, so they're all the same in salvation. In the political climate of the time, they were weaker. So they have more issues so a woman by herself has lots of problems in this society. And then uh, more, don't replay evil with evil. Basically, I want you to be good people. I want people to see your lives differently, is what Paul's saying. Uh, more the same. Do not fear the threats, do not be frightened. But in your heart, revere God. Because you're, they're undergoing persecution. He said, it's going to happen. Uh, for it is better, if it's God will, to suffer for doing good than doing evil. Again, back to that same thing he told the slaves. If you're going to suffer, make sure you suffer for doing the right stuff, not for doing bad stuff. And then he talks about Noah. There, all these people are saved through water. And this water symbolizes the baptism that now saves you. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ who is now in the heaven at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers submission. Basically, we are disciples of Christ who is at God's right hand. Uh, some more. And then, he, again, it's, it's that back. You need to live differently than the people around you. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans chose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and idolatry. They are surprised, because once you convert to Christianity, they change their lives. They are surprised that you do not join them in a reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. This actually describes a lot of what was going on in the temples at the time. And so once you convert to Christianity, they quit going to temple. People go, well, you're different. Why aren't you joining us? You know, it's peer pressure. Would uh, they have debated the word pagan like they would? I mean, oh, they're called Christians pagan. Right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. 
Oh, there's no doubt. They were called Christians. You're the pagan. Not, not me. I'm not pagan. I'm, you know, I'm going to Jupiter's temple. Uh, and so what Peter said, now, they're the pagans because we know God and we know Christ. So he's actually flipping it on what all these Christians were being called pagan by their neighbors. By atheists and pagans. Because you're not worshiping the gods that we know that are gods. You're not worshiping Diana. You're not worshiping Jupiter. You're not worshiping Mer Mercury. Uh, and you go, so it, it's, it's a little wordplay here for him. He's saying, no, they're really the pagans. Not you. Even though you're getting called pagan, it's really them that are pagans. The, the end of all things is near. Be alert and a sober mind that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality. Uh, each of you should use whatever gift you receive to serve others. So service, love, service, love, service. Uh, if anyone speaks, speak, speaks like they're speaking the words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength of God. Uh, to him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. End of a comment. So basically, it comes back to the same thing. The important things are love and service. Uh, again, wrapping up, dear friends, do not prospect the fiery ordeal that has come to test you as, as of something strange. He, he said again, Jesus was tested. Jesus was persecuted. If you're followers of Jesus, you will be persecuted. Uh, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other criminal or a meddler. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. So, again, do good, don't do bad. Uh, and then he throws some Proverbs in here. And then he talks to the elders among you, saying that there are, in fact, elders in these churches. Uh, I feel as a fellow elder, be shepherds. Uh, do be, be willing, don't pursue dishonest gain, eager to serve. The, calls Jesus the chief shepherd. Uh, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to the elders. All of you, close yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud and shows humble favor to the humble, which is Proverbs. Uh, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion. <coughs> Roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist the devil. Stand firm in the faith. And again, to, to him be the power and ever and ever. Amen. Ends the phrase. And then the very end of the book, with the help of Silas, which of course was the guy that Paul and Silas were the first team, and then obviously Silas left, and the next, and now he is with Peter. Uh, who, is, who wrote, so Silas wrote the book. Uh, and then she was in Babylon, which is Rome, uh, sends her greetings. All the church in Rome sends the greetings. Uh, and does so my son Mark, we think this is John Mark, who in the last book, at the same time, uh, Paul tells Titus that if he can find John Mark, bring him to him because he's, he's, he's helpful. Uh, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. That wraps up First Peter. There you go. One minute over. <laughs> all right. Next week is Second Timothy. Timothy, the last of the Paul books. And then the week after that, we're going to have a special speaker from Israel. Israel.
little, little travel log, some video, some uh, travel slides. I'm sure Randall will get the, the old slide show out. <laughs> All right. All right, we'll see you then.